Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 76, which begins with Dallas saying, All right, not too convincingly, and ends with Parker saying, Nothing. As it's Monday, we have new guests. Uh, we're joined by Tyler Smith and David Bax from the Battleship Pretension Podcast. Thanks for coming on, guys. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for, for having us. Great. I'm doing fine. <laughs> All right. So, not at the same time, one at a time. Can either one of you guys remember the first time you saw Alien? I really don't remember. I must have been in high school, and I think I probably had seen Aliens first. Uh, and then I think my um, a friend of mine uh, named uh, Mark Kelly uh, lent me the box set of VHS. Uh, like all, all uh, I guess I'm, I'm trying to remember if Resurrection would have been included in that uh, at that time. Um, and I think maybe that was the first time that I actually watched Alien. I wasn't allowed to watch it when I was younger because my parents are very strict about R-rated movies. Yeah, for me, um, I definitely saw Aliens first. I saw Aliens with a group of friends when we were like seven or eight. Um, <laughs> uh, too young, uh, I would say. But uh, I loved it. You know, we would then like play Aliens on the playground uh, where we were just like Marines and stuff. And uh, and it was super awesome. But um, and I don't think it even registered to me until a little bit later in life, which at the very least a couple years later that, oh, this is the second film. There's actually a first film, um, even though in retrospect, when you watch, it's like, yeah, this is constantly making reference to something that happened before. But uh, but I was young and stupid and didn't understand <laughs> that. And so I think I I think I must have been probably 13 uh, when I first rented uh, Alien, maybe 14. Uh, my parents weren't as strict uh, about rated R movies. Um, and so I rented it. Uh, David, you'll have an appreciation for this. I rented it from a grocery store, video store, yeah. uh, or video section, and then uh, watched it in, alone in my basement in uh, in Denver, Colorado. And it was dark, and it was uh, kind of creepy. Um, but I remember thinking... At the t it, I, I liked Aliens more at the time, but as I've gotten older and have more of an appreciation for tone and pacing, uh, like a deliberate pacing and that sort of thing, uh, Alien has come to uh, overtake Aliens by, for me, a very, very wide margin. Yeah, I think Aliens is much more user-friendly, and Alien really doesn't give a shit whether you like it or not. And so it creates <laughs> yeah. something that's much more dangerous. But you know what's so funny? Everybody seems to fall into one of two camps. It's the people who saw Aliens first or the people who saw Alien first. Nobody has said, you know, I saw Alien Resurrection first. Or nobody has said, I saw Alien 3 first. You know, it hasn't happened that way. Well, I think we were so deep into the home video era by the time Alien 3 came out. I can speak from my own experience that by the time Alien 3 came out, um, I was going to see as much Alien as I could before I saw Alien 3. And I, I had seen Aliens already and knew of Alien, but it wasn't until the big promotional push that was Alien 3 that, that I decided to go back and watch Alien. So at that time, it's going to be really rare for someone to have not checked in with Alien, the, the franchise, before they went to see Alien 3. I know. And God, God knows they probably wouldn't go back. No. <laughs> if no. That was where they started. Definitely not. Can I tell that. you, I can almost guarantee... That before I saw any Alien or, or Aliens movie, uh, I I read the Dark Horse comic book adaptation miniseries of Alien Three. That was probably really? like the first Alien thing that I ever because my parents couldn't keep me from my, like uh, you know I was too I was too young 
when did Alien Three come out? Ninety two. Ninety two. So I was, uh, it was probably I was nine or ten. So I was like not uh, definitely not allowed, but I was allowed to ride my bike to the comic book store, and so uh, that was I, I'm almost entirely sure that before I had seen any Aliens movie, I, I read that uh, miniseries. I'm curious then is. Is that comic adaptation filled with extra stuff? Because I know we look at the comic adaptations of the first movie, and because they were working off of a script that changed, um, it was it was different. I just wonder, do you know, was three were the comic books of three different than the movie of three? I don't remember, and like yeah. you know, I haven't read it since then. <laughs> so yeah, right. I think I was just really into the uh, design of the alien, uh, which you know, who can blame me? Yeah. It's pretty iconic. Well, let's just jump into this minute then. And, and um, you guys kind of come in at a pretty good place. It was kind of a cliffhanger last week with leaving poor Dallas alone for two days in there. So we're back and here we are. And he's he's stuck. And there's a pretty serious music cue happening here. Yeah. Yeah. The, the soundtrack gets real big here all of a sudden. Right? Um, yeah. Throughout the movie, you know, Goldsmith, one of the things that we've talked about with Jerry Goldsmith's musical choices is uh, there's a lot of subtlety, especially in the stuff, you know, some of the stuff that uh, really Scott decided to put on the soundtrack that wasn't Goldsmith's intention, notwithstanding. A lot of times he kind of stays under, lower in the music mix. It's not necessarily on top of it all the time. But here we're telegraphing maybe a little bit what's going to happen to Dallas. And maybe it's because we already know, like there's no way. I, d- I seriously doubt anybody thought Dallas was going to get out of this, especially when he's at the mercy of, uh, his only source of information being Lambert in that... Uh, in a really in, shitty tracker. <laughs> that shitty tracker that she's trying to get information <laughs> from. It all kind of seems like he's pretty fucked uh, from the beginning here. So, um, But it is a nice big moment, and I think it's actually a nice little bit arousing score. What do you guys think about this uh, choice with the music? I like that the music's big because what I like about Thomas Garrett's performance is that he's not playing... Thomas Garrett isn't playing like these are the last moments of Dallas's life. He's still very sort of like... Uh, just going through like his duties and the motions, and he's like, uh, you know, like you said, the first thing he says is "all right." Like, "all right" isn't something you say when you're in like mortal terror. He's still treating it as like this is a part of my job, and I'm just like trying to get from one task to the next and do this the best that I can. And um, so I like, I really like Tom Scarrett's choice to not uh, to not play that up. And so I think the music is fine because it's uh, in juxtaposition to that. And I think, um, you know, a moment ago you were talking about the idea of of Alien not caring whether you like it or not, uh, as opposed to Aliens. And I think this is the moment that maybe personifies that attitude the most. Tom Skerritt is top build. He is a likable guy. And this is, this is an ensemble film. We re- now, admittedly, we really don't know who's going to die and who's not going to die. But at the same time, we can also we look at who we know. And hey, this is the guy. This guy was in Mash, uh, and he's and we don't we know in retrospect. But at the time, we don't know that Ripley is going to be the lone survivor. And so there's an element here that yeah, we the music de- is definitely telegraphing that he's not going to make it out. But at the same time, there's got to be an element, you know. Uh, as somebody who is only culturally aware of uh, Game of Thrones, I know that there are people that said that right up until the axe fell, they assumed something was going to happen and Ned Stark was going to be okay. And I have to assume that 
there were people at the time who thought like, okay, this is very scary, but I'm sure Tom Skerritt is going to make it out. He is the lead after all. He's top build. But yeah, when the captain of the ship who is laid back, as David was saying, and calm usually, and even in this moment is trying not to lose his cool, when he can die, especially this relatively soon, he's not the last to die. Um, I think it kind of shows you that all bets are off and this is a truly fatalistic, if not full-on nihilistic universe. Yeah, I think that's that's totally true because I remember seeing it the first time and being so completely wrapped up in this moment and not really thinking he was going to die so quickly, thinking that it was certainly not going to end as abruptly as it does. Um, but what's really interesting is in the midst of all this, when you see that shot of Ash, that profile shot where he's completely impassive and emotionless. Like when I, I don't remember that at all when I first saw the movie, cause I was so into the story and you watch it now and it's like, Oh my God, why, why and what are they doing with this shot of this guy? You know, that it's gotta be telling me something. Well, you remember this is a, a basically a replay of the profile shot, the extremely indifferent Ash profile shot we got outside of the airlock earlier when Dallas and, and Lambert are arguing with Ripley about bringing Kane, Kane onto the ship. We get this quick cut, which I had never really, never really registered with me before until we started looking the at same the movie shot. this way. Yeah. It's basically the same shot lit differently, but that's about it. And it's just that this, this little signpost moment where we're supposed to probably go, oh shit, something's wrong with this guy. There's something really but wrong with not, this guy, but it passes by. Not because it, it could also read as like a uh, quiet resolve, you know? Yeah. Or resignate or resignation, right? Because um, if you look at the way he, the way Ian Holm plays it with uh, um, Kane, when things are starting to go, or not even necessarily starting to go bad, but you just see everybody sitting around the table early on, and everyone's laughing, and 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 Ash seems to be laughing a little bit, but then there's a moment when he kind of gives a little. He kind of lowers his head and just kind of squints at Kane a little bit, wondering, like, there's there's something going on. Like, this is a guy who is perpetually inquisitive and perpetually detached from what is going on. And so in that moment, there is, in my view, if you don't know what Ash is, at the very least, you think that this is a guy who he knows everybody else is, is frantic and he knows there's no reason to be frantic because our captain is about to die and we all know it. Um, and so I, resolve might be a good word too, but I definitely resignation implies that he's like emotionally uh, involved, which he doesn't seem to be. But, um, but yeah, I, I look at that and I see it as a guy who has sort of made his peace with the fact that uh, another person's going to die. See, I, now I look at it in juxtaposition with how everyone else is acting in this scene. I mean, you could isolate Ash and come up with those conclusions, but when you have this heavy breathing, panicky Lambert on the soundtrack, when you have this now emotional for the really the first time in the movie, truly emotional uh, Ripley, we're getting like, here's here's one person with a lot of emotion. Here's another person with a lot of emotion. Here's someone with zero emotion. And I feel like you got to take something from that. You got it. That's got to be a clue. But I'm not saying when you're watching it, you could take it many different ways when you're just watching it for the first time and you don't know about Ash. But now it just seems so obvious to me. I don't yeah. know, and that and I, and yeah. that's not a bad thing. I mean, no. I think that's one of the one of the great things about this movie is that 
upon multiple viewings, you see all these new colors and they're not new colors at all. They were right there in front of you, but you were being misdirected or aimed in another direction. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about the film. Yeah. Well, so we get this, um, we get this horrible moment where Dallas goes, makes a choice and goes up into the next uh, level and turns around and we've got our first really serious boo scare <laughs> with that that with him swinging the light around to illuminate the alien and then the alien just shoving its arms out towards him and then cutting to this static um i don't know but for me i think that was one of the maybe the maybe since the face hugger jumped out onto kane's helmet this is the the next big boo scare that we've authentic boo scare that we've had in the movie i think yeah. now do you guys as far as a jump scare here do you guys think it works better because you had this little I- bit of an idea that Dallas might make it that, that maybe that this wasn't necessarily going to happen or does is it just pulled off perfectly in the edit? I think it's so it's so different than the previous death we've just seen which it, not just seen but you know Harry Dean Stanton that death is drawn out and it is a foregone conclusion for a long time that he's going to die whereas this while we do sort of assume it, you know, um, this is a very abrupt cutout. You know, this is, uh, this is okay, Dallas might make it, everything's okay, uh, things aren't going well, but there's always the chance, nope, there's no chance at all, it's done. It's over. Like, whatever hope you might have is very abruptly stopped. Um, and, uh, and I will mention real quick, uh, this is a thing that uh, we mentioned, uh, we recorded some uh, commentaries for the show, uh, and uh, for about Alien, and the person that we had on during this moment is a guy who went out of his way to say that he never really responded to this moment when the alien reaches out, and I've heard other people say it as well, that they find, some people find it kind of comical that they say like, oh, it's like the alien wants a hug. I disagree completely. I, to me, there's nothing, there's nothing creepier than a monster reaching out for you. And the fact that it cuts before he grabs Dallas and pulls him in um, is, to me, like incredibly terrifying. Um, but I don't know. Do you guys, you guys seem to respond appropriately to this moment and not like some kind of jerk, right? <laughs> yes. well, I'm just fascinated by the fact that it's there all along, that, that mm-hmm. the scene... Um, although there may be a, I don't know whether it's a, whether there's an extra cut in on the alien or not, but the fact that it's right there in the same space and you don't see it until that light swings around. And I think that is just brilliant. It's really, really an honest scare. And I, I think that speaks to the other purpose that this serves is that over the course of the movie, we're, uh, becoming more visually familiar with what the alien looks like, you know, in Harry and Stanton's, we had the thing with the tail and everything and then this is like the uh this is like the we're gonna need a bigger boat <laughs> moment yeah. you know of the you know seeing the alien jump out and having the light uh right on it even though the the, the shot doesn't last long enough for you to really study it it is uh, as the movie goes on you're getting you're piecing together like the uh like the proverbial blind men and the elephant like piecing together uh what this thing is and how terrifying it is have you guys ever seen this with a crowd you've seen it in the theater on the big screen Yes. How did the crowd react at this part? Well, I was seeing with a crowd full of dicks. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> like, it, I I saw it at, I think it's, what was it? I guess the 25th anniversary of it. Um, 
Is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. It was the 25th anniversary, and so I was seeing it at a theater in Chicago, and it was not a full theater. There's people, I think, just seeing it maybe out of curiosity, but there are people that are talking and people that were, like, laughing at moments that are genuinely scary, and I don't know what it was, just, I don't know, maybe laughing at the special effects, even though I think the special effects are great. Um, if I had the opportunity to see it at a theater here in Los Angeles, I think I'd probably take advantage of that, because here you tend to get audiences that are uh, more appreciative and are more excited to see it. So, uh, so that moment did not really seem to register with the audience at all. But I have seen it with friends. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> only a few months ago, I watched the movie with a friend who had never seen it before. And uh, he did let out an audible noise when this <laughs> moment happened. Yeah, I, th- I think the laughter it oftentimes is, is just that audible noise. It's just the person's chosen audible noise they give out when the scare happens. I think... Some people do think it's corny or whatever. I, I've heard people say that too, that it looks like he's giving you a hug, which by the way, that's really scary too. That idea <laughs> that idea is maybe scarier in a way. But um, I think that there's a cathartic, that cathartic laughter that you'll have in a moment when you're scared shitless. And I think that's, I mean, I've seen it a few times. Mitch has actually shown it in his class a couple of times. I'll go s- sneak in and just to get a chance to watch it on the big screen again and get all kinds of weird responses from college students, you know, but um yeah, I think that that's – I've always wondered what other people's experiences were with this big hug moment. You know, cutting to that uh, video static right after it is such an interesting move because it makes absolutely no sense. There is no video monitor yeah. involved anywhere <laughs> right. in this scene. You know, it's just some extra fireworks to cut to before, you know, we get back to our humans. Maybe it's that terrible, that shitty tracker, just that <laughs> monitor that Lambert's looking at shorten out for some reason at the exact same moment. <laughs> just insult to injury. That yeah. <laughs> but I did want to bring up Lambert here. I love, guys, you haven't, I, I don't know if you know this, I'm a big Lambert apologist here. I'm, I, I maybe go on about it a little bit too much. But um, Lambert here does say something to uh, Dallas right before he, he bites it, which is, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> she actually mm-hmm. tells him. That he's going the wrong way. Do you think that had he been listening and gone the right way that maybe he could have gotten out? Or do you think this is one of those situations where we've had a few times where people didn't pay attention to what Lambert had to say because of the way she's saying it? Uh Or you just can't take it seriously? Or it's hard to take instructions from someone who's freaking out like 20 times more than you are? Uh, I kind of wondered if if she's – oftentimes she's saying the right thing in this movie. And either her advice isn't being heeded or people just aren't listening altogether. I just wanted to point that out because I'm a Lambert defender. Uh, I I don't know that um, he would have survived. I think those aliens uh, moved pretty quickly. Um, If he had gone the other way, it it, it maybe would have added a few uh, precious seconds to his life. Uh, But about Veronica Cartwright's performance here, I, uh, in in the movie in general, it's funny. I kind of, I, um, not even like intending to uh, have this tie in. I just the other night watched Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm. Uh, and it kind of feels like Veronica Cartwright, because that was like the year before this. It kind of feels like where Veronica Cartwright's character is in the final moments of Invasions of the Body Snatchers, she just carried that over yeah. to the entire <laughs> alien. It does. <laughs> she You're got right. home and there was an offer to come f- go to space, and she's like, I'm getting the fuck off of this planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't do her any favors like in this next shot when they cut when we go to the people in the aftermath of this because previously in the last time the crew was regrouping and and making a plan she's photographed with this long lens and it's it's really one of the 
one of the most beautiful shots of her in the movie. Now it's this wide lens, horribly brightly lit, and and she's close to camera, so the lens is distorting her face. And if there's a place to 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 be a Lambert apologist and to say, hey, geez, you guys, you can be a little rough on her. It's in this moment because she does not look good. I didn't know if you guys had anything to say. About that. <laughs> well, it's it, it just got me thinking about that, just the character of Lambert and uh, the idea of, you know, it is unfortunate that she's not necessarily unfortunate, but it's uh, her being so panicky all the time, um, you know, making her not look good. Doesn't, doesn't really mean much not to not to make fun of uh veronica cartwright that's not the point is that you know lambert once things even mildly start going bad you know her face is regularly contorted into panic or crying or whatever it is and so in this moment now if they had cut to you know one of these other people and 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 shot them in a way that was slightly distorted even if they weren't looking particularly emotional i feel like that could convey to the audience that like okay things have definitely change now and it's not only Lambert that is kind of freaked out but I guess at the same time it sort of makes sense that they cut to her because she is I'd say as far as an audience surrogate I'd say she and Yafet Koto where she is fear and he is anger uh, I feel like they are the key characters and in this next scene uh, you, that's both of them sort of embody that yeah I think that's absolutely true I think that that fear and anger idea is really great. And somehow, maybe because at this point, anger is prettier than fear. <laughs> anger is, is ho- more hopeful than fear. You know, they're still yeah. photographing Yafakoto with a certain a certain visual, I don't know, flattery. I don't know. They're, they're making him look better. Everybody looks better than Lambert at this moment. And it's, um, it's perverse. And it's too bad because Veronica Cartwright, doesn't look that bad as as they make her look in this and her blue eyes are spectacular it's just an interesting strategy for the filmmaker to just try to put the movie under your skin just a little bit more than it already is well i had one last thing to say as this is the uh this is a death minute where we lost someone today i wanted to say one more thing about dallas you know as the show has progressed we've talked a little bit about how tom scarrett's performance sort of hints at a, a bit of an unraveling like he he begins as an upright captain you know upstanding guy very, very competent and cool. And then as the alien situation increases, he starts to come apart a little bit. And his friend Kane gets a face hugger on his face and um, all this happens. You know, he started to seem like he was going to come unglued. But when, when Brett died and they it was time to make a plan, he sat down, he made a plan. When it was time to go into the air ducts, he volunteered to do it. I think Tom Scarrett gave a great performance. I just wanted to give one last uh, bit of word for for Dallas and for Tom Scarrett here. <laughs> He did a great job with the progression, the arc of his character. And you'll be missed, Dallas. All right. Do you guys got anything else at all? Yeah, just that uh, I'll I'll echo that. Uh, His performance along with, I'd say, um, Ian Holm. uh, Tom Scarrett's performance has always been part of uh, one of my favorites, uh, favorite aspects of this film. Precisely because, you know, this is a a future that is not particularly uh, humanistic, but his performance definitely is. Like he, you know, the the big thing that they said was this was meant to be truckers in space. And uh, while we definitely get a sense of that from, you know, Yafet Koto and and, uh, Harry Dean Stanton and stuff, I would say that the guy who often seems most like he's just at work and 
he's fine with his job because he's in charge, but at the same time, you know, whatever, who cares? He's just going to do what he has to do, uh, is Tom Skerritt. He, de- he seems like somebody that you would know in life. And, uh, and it's a very, it's an interesting choice to make because other people would say, Hey, I'm the captain of the ship. So I got to play it, uh, in a particularly authoritative way. And he really doesn't. He seems in many ways, he seems like your cool boss and you don't want to lose your cool boss. No, but they did. And it's going to have a, a pretty serious effect on him in the next minute. I think. Um, so guys, why don't you tell our listeners where they can uh, find you guys on the internet? Well, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where all of our uh, podcasts are, all of our movie reviews, all the other podcasts and other stuff that we do. Uh, it's a great place for movie nerds to uh, read our stuff, read our content. <laughs> you can email email us at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. And we're on Twitter at Davey Pretension and Tyler Pretension. You can find us at AlienMinute.com or follow us on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. We're on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, we'll give our weekly shout-out to the Star Wars Minute guys. Thanks a lot for loaning us out the format here. And you can find other minute-by-minute podcasts at MoviesByMinutes.com. All right, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 77.